Hi, I'm Robert Jeffress, and I'm glad to serve as your Bible teacher every day on this great radio station. On today's edition of Pathway to Victory, a disciple, somebody who molds his life after the principles of another. Now, Jesus said the reason you and I exist is to go into the city of Dallas, into our country, into the world, and make disciples. What is a disciple? This is important to understand. If we're going to be a disciple, if we're going to go out and make disciples, we better know what one looks like. Welcome to Pathway to Victory with author and pastor, Dr. Robert Jeffress. The 12 disciples gave up everything in order to follow Jesus, friends, family, possessions, and home. Could God be calling us to do the same? Today on Pathway to Victory, Dr. Robert Jeffress considers the cost of being a disciple in today's world. It's a message called Becoming Salty Saints. Now, here's our Bible teacher to introduce today's message. Dr. Jeffress? Thanks, David, and welcome again to Pathway to Victory. In my entire adult life, I've never witnessed a time when our nation has been so deeply divided. The political parties have become polarized. But on Pathway to Victory, our primary goal is not political. Our role is to draw people together beneath the banner of the gospel of Jesus Christ. God's Word is our final authority, and it's the Bible we teach every day on this program. In light of these times, I'm more committed than ever before to bring the light of the gospel to our nation and the world. There's no hope without the grace, truth, and love of Jesus Christ. Gratefully, Pathway to Victory has been blessed to receive a wonderful $500,000 gospel advance matching challenge. Because of this incredible arrangement, we're able to match dollar for dollar every gift you give up until the deadline of July 4th. Now, here's what that means. Your generous gift today of, say, $100 will be matched until it becomes $200. A $500 generous gift becomes $1,000. A $5,000 gift would become $10,000. You choose the amount. These resources will enable us to help believers grow in their faith. It will help us introduce the lost and hurting to Christ. And it will help us connect the next generation to the firm foundation of God's Word. Plus, when you give your gift before July 4th, we'll say thanks by providing my brand new, fully illustrated children's book called Jesus' Favorite Stories for Kids. I'll say more about these wonderful opportunities later on. But right now, let's turn our attention to Luke chapter 14, where we find another favorite story from Jesus. I titled today's message, Becoming Salty Saints. As Alexander the Great was moving toward the east in his conquest of the world, he came upon a city that had been strongly fortified. Uh, The king came out to greet Alexander, and Alexander demanded that the king and the citizens surrender immediately. The king laughed and said, why in the world should I surrender to you? Look at the wall that encompasses this city. So Alexander decided to give the king a demonstration. Nearby the city walls was a sheer cliff. Alexander ordered his men to line up in a single column and to start marching toward that precipice. The citizens of the city and the king watched with horrified fascination 
as they saw that column of men marching closer and closer to the edge of the cliff. After several men, several soldiers had gone over the edge, plunging to their deaths, Alexander halted the column, and he turned back to the king. The citizens suddenly realized they did not have walls thick enough to protect themselves against that kind of radical commitment. The citizens of the city ran through the city gates and threw themselves at Alexander's feet, surrendering immediately. That same kind of radical loyalty those soldiers demonstrated toward Alexander the Great is the same kind of commitment, radical commitment, that Jesus Christ demands from those of us who truly want to be his disciples. And it's that kind of commitment that Jesus talks about in the passage we're going to look at today. If you have your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 14, beginning with verse 25, as we look at the cost of following Christ. Luke chapter 14, beginning with verse 25. Do I have to tell you that we are in a political season right now? Uh, It's already revving up. It's been going on for about a year. And if you'll notice, in every political season, it doesn't matter which party it is, both parties are always promising everything under the sun if you will simply vote for them. But how different Jesus Christ was from the political charlatans of our day. It seems like, especially in the passage we're going to look at today, that Jesus isn't trying to attract followers. It almost seems like He's trying to discourage followers. And there's a reason for that. Look at verse 25 of Luke 14. It says, Now great multitudes were going along with him. There were two phases to the ministry of Jesus Christ. There was the public ministry in which he did all of these miracles in order to garner a crowd. But then there was the private ministry in which Jesus talked about the cost of following him. And we see the pivot between those two phases of Jesus' ministry beginning in verse 25. Jesus looked at the great crowds that had been following him. And he said to himself, it's time to thin out the ranks. It's time to pare down these people who say they want to be my disciples. And so Jesus, beginning in verse 26, lays out the cost of being a true disciple of Christ. Now, before we talk about what the demands of being a disciple are, I think it would first of all be helpful to discover what the definition of a disciple is. So let's hold our place here and turn back over to Matthew chapter 28, one of the seminal passages on discipleship. Matthew chapter 28 Verses 19 to 20. These are verses very familiar to us. We often call them the Great Commission. Jesus' final marching orders to the church. Jesus said, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Ladies and gentlemen, the reason you and I exist, the reason we have been left here instead of being raptured when we were saved, the reason First Baptist Church Dallas exists in the heart of this city is for one reason. We have been left here to make disciples. What is a disciple? 
the technical definition of a disciple is this, if you want to jot it down. One who professes to have learned certain principles from another and maintains those principles in his life. One who professes to have learned certain principles from another and maintains those principles in his life. In Jesus' day, there were all kind of rabbis who had their own followings. And if there were a particular rabbi to whom you were attracted, you might choose to become his disciple. You would go around with him. You would listen carefully to his teaching. But more importantly, you would seek to emulate every activity of his life and make it a part of your life. A disciple, somebody who molds his life after the principles of another. Now, Jesus said the reason you and I exist, the reason this church exists, is to go into the city of Dallas, into our country, into the world, and make disciples. Well, what is a disciple? Let me give you four characteristics of a disciple I have there on your outline. This is important to understand. First of all, if we're going to be a disciple, if we're going to go out and make disciples, we better know what one looks like. First of all, a disciple is a Christian. A disciple is a Christian. Now, I can already hear the collective duh from the audience, okay? Pastor, why are you telling us something we already know? Obviously, a disciple is a Christian. Why would you even take time to say that? Because there are a lot of people who are trying to live the Christian life without ever being a Christian. They're trying to follow some of the teachings of Jesus without ever having the supernatural power to do so. You see, a non-Christian cannot be a disciple of Christ. He, doesn't, he can't be a follower of Jesus. A non-Christian lacks a proper relationship with God. The Bible says we are born into this world separated from God. There is a barrier between God and us, and that barrier is sin. The reason Christ died for you and me is to tear down that barrier between God and us. Also, a non-Christian lacks the supernatural resource to be a disciple. You need the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit that comes into your life once you're saved in order to follow Christ. So first of all, a disciple is someone who's made that foundational decision to receive Christ as a Savior. But that's not all. Secondly, a disciple has a growing relationship with Christ. He has a growing relationship with Christ. That is, he knows God better today than he did a year ago. It means he knows more about God's Word today than he did a year ago. It means he is more obedient in his life to God today than he's a year ago. His relationship with God is not static. It's dynamic. What would you say to a friend of yours who came and confessed, you know, my relationship with my mate just isn't what it used to be. They've turned into a person I hardly feel like I know anymore. We just don't do that many things together. I don't feel as intimate with them, as close to them as I once did. I really don't enjoy being around them that much. You'd probably say that that person's marriage is in the process of disintegrating, wouldn't you? It's the same in our relationship with Jesus Christ. If we are a true disciple of Christ, we are growing in that relationship with Christ. Number three, a disciple obeys Christ in every area of his life. And that's in the passage here. Jesus said, we are to teach them to observe all things whatsoever I commanded you. 
A disciple doesn't pick and choose those parts of Jesus' command that he's going to obey. I think I'll do that, but no, that's too hard. It doesn't work that way. He is intent on applying all of Christ's commands to his life. Jesus said in John 14, verse 23, If anyone loves me, he will keep my words. If anyone does not love me, he will not keep my word. It's pretty bottom line, isn't it? Number four, a disciple makes new disciples. If you're truly a follower of Jesus Christ, you're going to take seriously these final orders from Jesus to go into all the world and make disciples. Whatever your secular vocation is, whatever your responsibilities are, you're going to understand the one reason God left you here was to attract people to Jesus Christ and help them follow him. Looking out there right now, and I see... Lori and Bo Karenik, we had the memorial service for their daughter, Audrey, 50 years of age, who passed away with pancreatic cancer. And uh, she worked at Abbott Laboratories in Irving. That was her secular job. But in everything she did, everything she said, she knew her reason for being here was to attract people to Christ. And we heard testimonials yesterday of people from her workplace who had been turned toward Christ because of the words that she spoke and the way she lived her life. She lived, she died, understanding her one reason for being here. That's what a disciple is. A disciple is committed to making new disciples. Now that we know what a disciple is, let's look at the requirements for being a disciple. That's really what the passage is about. Look at Luke chapter 14, beginning with verse 26. Two requirements for being a disciple, Jesus says. If you're going to follow me, first of all, that demands an unconditional allegiance. An unconditional allegiance. Look at verse 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Those are pretty strong words, aren't they? I was reading this week the words of the 19th century writer Joseph Renan, an unbeliever who wrote the blasphemous book, The Life of Jesus. And Joseph Renan actually uses these words to try to show that Jesus couldn't have been the Messiah. After all, he said, look at what Jesus is doing. He's trampling underfoot everything that we humans hold sacred. Blood and love of country and love of family. It just doesn't seem right that Jesus would ask somebody to do that if he were really the righteous man he claims to be. Nobody would demand that kind of commitment. But notice what the text says here. Jesus demands our allegiance above anyone and anything else. Don't misunderstand. I'm as patriotic as the next person. I I get goosebumps and a lump in my throat when I sing the Star Spangled Banner. I love our country. We all ought to love our country. But we should never confuse our loyalty to our government with loyalty to God. Quite frankly, it makes me uneasy when we stand up in a service and we place our hand over our heart and we pledge allegiance to the flag, to the country, 
And then the next breath, we turn around and we pledge allegiance to Jesus Christ and his cause and his kingdom. We never want to give the idea that those are on equal planes with one another. Not at all. And the reason I say that is, I believe, ladies and gentlemen, sooner rather than later, there's a time coming in our country when we're going to have to make a choice. We're going to have to make the same choice that Christians in every other civilization have made. There's going to come a time when we have to choose serving Jesus Christ and obeying Him above obeying the governing authorities. And when that time comes, we better never hesitate. We never better make sure that our children don't understand there is a difference. Jesus Christ says our allegiance, our unconditional allegiance, belongs to Him and Him alone. But now in verse 26, notice Jesus deals with something even more personal than our allegiance to our country. He deals with our allegiance to our own family. He said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he can't be my disciple. Now, again, this doesn't seem right. I mean, Jesus, weren't you the one who said we need to honor our father and mother? Doesn't your word says we're supposed to love our children? Why is it you would call on us to hate our family? Again, we need to understand this word hate in the biblical context. The word here, hate, doesn't carry the idea of emotional ill will. Perhaps the best understanding comes from Romans chapter 9, verse 13, where Paul's quoting the Old Testament, and he talks about God's choosing Jacob over Esau, and God said, Jacob, I have loved. Esau, I have what? I've hated. Now, did God feel badly about Esau? Did he have emotional ill will toward Esau? Not really. Esau was really more lovable than Jacob was, as far as personalities go. But in God's sovereign plan, he chose to bless Jacob over Esau. So the word hate here carries the idea of a choice. And that's what Jesus is saying here. He said, if it ever comes down to serving your family or serving God, a true disciple will always choose God over family. Again, uh, that goes against not just our secular culture, that goes against our Christian culture today. I'm not sure Jesus would have ever been invited to be a guest on Focus on the Family, you know, talking like this. I mean, it just doesn't sound right. We're told, family above everything, family above all. No, no. Jesus says, God above all. It's not that you're not to care about your family and love your family, but if it ever comes down to whom you're going to serve, it's always God. There's some of you right now who are trying to be a faithful follower of Christ. It's causing you friction in your home. Causing you friction with your husband, your wife, your parents. And maybe you're being tempted right now to compromise, give up, give in. Jesus says, no, if you're going to follow me, it means an unconditional allegiance. Not only that, but second, to be a disciple demands a willingness to die. Look at verse 27. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. A willingness to die. You know, today Christians have a funny idea about the cross. There's some people who uh, want to romanticize the cross. 
They wear the cross as a decoration. Go down to James Avery over at North Park and get your cross necklace or your cross ring and use it as a decorative item. You've heard me say before that the cross was never used as a decoration for the first 400 years of church history. Did you know that? The reason is the cross was something horrible. It was an instrument of torture. I've said before, for Christians in the first century to go around wearing a cross around their neck would be like are going around wearing a miniature electric chair around our neck. You just wouldn't do that. It doesn't seem right. Some people romanticize the cross. Other people trivialize the cross. They use the term carrying your cross to mean, you know, going through some unpleasant times or doing something inconvenient or having some problem in your life. Oh, that's my cross to bear. They use it to refer to everything from allergies to an obnoxious mother-in-law. Oh, that's my cross to bear in life. You know. That's not how Jesus uses the term here. In Jesus' day, the cross meant one thing. If you saw someone going through the streets of Jerusalem carrying the cross, you knew that person was on his way to his own death. The cross meant execution. And that's how Jesus is using the term here. To be a disciple means a willingness to die. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. What kind of death is Jesus talking about? Is he talking about physical death? Are you saying Jesus, is Jesus saying to be a disciple, you have to be willing to give up your life? Would God ever require that of me? Maybe. Did you know that around the world, there were more martyrs for Christianity in the 20th century than there were in the 1st century. Did you know that? We're not suffering the intense persecution that other Christians are suffering right now. But I think that's only temporary. I think there is a time coming when we too will be have, to, have to be willing to give up our life for the cause of Christ. I think he's talking about physical life, but I think he's talking about more than that. Those of you who know the original language knows that this term, carry his own cross, carries with it a continuous action. Whoever does not keep on carrying his own cross. You can only give up your physical life once. But Jesus means whoever is not willing to keep on dying. What does it mean to keep on dying? I think he's talking about a willingness to die to your own desires every day. Willing to give up your hopes, your dreams, your aspirations. To become a disciple, you have to be willing to kill those things, to give them up for the cause of Christ. By now, I hope you've come to understand that the reason God placed us on earth is to prevent the premature decay of our world and to make people thirst after God. That's what it means to become a salty saint. I wanted to return to something I mentioned earlier in today's program because this is very, very important. Not long ago, I wrote a new children's book called Jesus' Favorite Stories for Kids. As a father of two adults and now the grandfather to triplets, my heart is burdened for the next generation of salty saints. And as a pastor, I fully understand that some of the greatest lessons in life are embraced and fully understood at very young ages. 
Jesus knew that, of course, and that's why he used stories or parables to make his point. My brand new children's book is called Jesus' Favorite Stories for Kids, and I want you to have a copy in your home or one to give away to your grandchildren. It's yours when you give a generous gift toward the matching challenge that's active for just a few more days. The deadline for the matching challenge is July 4th. And when you give a generous gift today, your gift will be doubled dollar for dollar. That means your gift will have twice the impact. We're extremely excited about opportunities for greater influence as salt and light in our world. Stations come to Pathway to Victory all the time, inviting us to become part of their daily lineup. But to add a new station, whether it's radio or television, comes with a price tag. We couldn't say yes to any of these invitations without the partnership with people just like you. May I count on you to invest generously in Pathway to Victory? Thank you in advance for your continued faithfulness. David? Thanks, Dr. Jeffress. The brand new children's book called Jesus' Favorite Stories for Kids is yours today when you give a generous gift to the ministry of Pathway to Victory. To make your request, call 866-999-2965 or online, simply go to ptv.org. And when your gift is $75 or more, we'll also include the complete unedited CD and DVD sets from this current study, The Parables, Jesus' Favorite Stories. Remember, because of the Gospel Advance Matching Challenge, your gift will be effectively doubled in impact by another generous donor. So request your copy of these resources today. Call 866-999-2965 or visit ptv.org. If you'd prefer to write, jot down this mailing address, P.O. Box 223-609, Dallas, Texas, 75222. That's P.O. Box 223-609, Dallas, Texas, 75222. I'm David J. Mullins, inviting you to join us again next time when Dr. Jeffress talks about the value of lost things. That's Thursday here on Pathway to Victory. Pathway to Victory with Dr. Robert Jeffress comes from the pulpit of the First Baptist Church of Dallas, Texas.